This is Timestamp, the podcast dedicated to capturing this moment in time. I'm Amy Breslow. Today's episode, In Search of Stability. My guest today is Heiner, who identifies as a Latinx man. So I identify as a uh, Latinx man. I identify that way because my, my heritage is not uh, uniform. It's not Latino or Hispanic um, from one particular country. My father is from El Salvador and my mother is from Mexico. And I was born in the United States. Uh, as such, um, I think that it is great about the Latinx identifier is that unlike Latino, which is a word that is borrowed or loaned from Spanish into English, and Hispanic, which is a term that is or that was created by white Anglo-Saxon individuals in, in public spaces, that Latinx is a term that's uniquely ours from folks who have heritage in Latin America, and that it is uniquely American because it is not a term that's used throughout uh, Latin America. I come from the South, and so your identity is kind of built on what the dominant cultures say you are. In, in LA, where I was born, we didn't have to say that we were Mexican or Salvadorian or you know anything like that. Everyone just kind of assumed that you were a member of whatever Latino community, and actually you could hear it in the language. But when we came to the South, people kind of looked at me and they're like, well, you're not white. And the black kids, obviously, you know, <laughs> you're obviously not black. And so people said Hispanic. And I use Hispanic all my life until graduate school when she was kind of a leader in our Latinx community. She kind of rebuffed me when I said that I was Hispanic. And it, it hurt, to be honest. She was from Texas, from a more, a more Latinx neighborhood, I think Mexican-American neighborhood to be specific. And I kind of sat there and I thought about uh, what these terms, what they mean to me. And I can't, you know, I can't just say that I'm Mexican-American, which I did for a long time, because that's the culture of my mother. Uh, and it's the food I eat. It's the language I speak. Uh, and I can't deny my father's heritage, uh, even if it isn't as dominant, as uh, prevalent in, in the way that I act. Because Central America is, is important to me from a personal standpoint, like where I come from. And so Latinx to me kind of gave, gave that opening in a way that was really sincere. I just got off the phone with my dad, uh, who was calling me to wish me uh, a happy birthday, a belated birthday. Uh, you know, he has a couple of like soup of really young kids. And so he went uh, on vacation uh, with them. And, you know, um, I, I don't, nowadays, I don't really mind that he um, delays on, on calling me a, a few days later or something, because my b birthday usually sits around Labor Day weekend. What was great about our conversation is that he and I have 
like since childhood had a really tumultuous relationship, a relationship that was actually like us trying to, you know, tease out and get used to or to work with generational trauma from his end, being uh, traumatized by civil war in his in his upbringing. And then just the regular generational gap between immigrants and their first generation American kids. And so what was amazing about this conversation is that, you know, I could hear the kids playing in the background. They are having a childhood that is much more rich, much more vivacious than the one that was afforded to me and my siblings. And I could hear it. And I could hear it in their voices when I speak to them because they're so happy and they're so safe. And, and then I say to him, what's to come? Because, you know, I'm a recent graduate as well. And, and he he knows that I've been waiting on uh, beginning my next job after graduate school. And so we're talking, we're talking about money. And we're talking about what the next chapter might look like. And our conversation is kind of surrounded by um, you know, how, how am I going to be stable as I'm, you know, now firmly in my thirties, how am I going to progress and ensure that, uh, I can have a family that's uh, safe and that I don't have to go through a lot of the trials and tribulations that my parents had to go through when they came to the U S and he was just so happy to hear about all of all of the opportunities that are afforded to me that he had hoped for and that he had given his blood, sweat and tears for when he was younger. He got his education as a, or his training as a nurse's assistant with hopes of one day becoming a nurse and maybe coming up to become a doctor. And so it was a little difficult to speak to him because obviously his kids are young and they're and they're playing in the background and and uh, sometimes it was distracting, but to me it, it made me so happy because those those kinds of issues aren't going to be as prevalent for them, and and they are existing and living in a space that is so much more stable, and as we get older, uh, as I got older, and as I am you know, again, yesterday was my birthday, so I'm now older. I know that we are coming through and becoming more stable and, and, and that we're actually living out aspects of the American dream or whatever folks defined as the American dream when they first coined the term in, in a way that's incredibly hopeful, in a way that is um, privileged in such a tumultuous time period. And so um, that what is important to me is, is to have that stability. And it's to have the opportunity to continue that. And also, you know, to recognize what a blessing that is, and to not take it for granted. I guess maybe the important background here is that my, my father actually uh, left us when I was uh, 18, actually on my birthday. Um, yeah, he, 
he he made the decision uh, that his responsibilities to our family uh, were finished because he supported us into adulthood. And of course, I still had my senior year to complete. So, um, and so my siblings, um, who didn't have as as tumultuous of a relationship with him when we were growing up, they they really saw this as kind of a, a as a shock. Um, it really took them back, and I saw it as an opportunity to not be so well to to no longer live under the thumb, right? Uh, he was. Uh, he was a difficult guy, um, and a lot of that difficulty came out of uh, the stress around ensuring that our family maintained some stability. And he was, you know, at times an angry person. He certainly didn't treat my mother the way I think she should have been treated, and it's and it's not uncommon in 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 our. I was going to say in our community, but also with folks who are at that level and seeking to rise, especially if they don't necessarily have the skills from where they came from to be in that in that position or to to be in a better position in the United States. It, it was it was tough. You know, my parents, they, they left uh, their home countries in pursuit of, in pursuit of a place that's, that's safer and where they can progress. My, uh, you know, my mother grew up on the border and even then, um, Mexicans from Siaquares couldn't spend more time uh, than what was allotted in their very temporary visas. Uh, in El Paso, Texas. And if you go to the border, you'll see how stark the differences are between El Paso, Texas, which is a mid-city, you know, or maybe even less than a mid-city, a mid-American city. But Ciudad Juarez, which is actually a large, bustling metropolitan uh, city in, in, in Mexico. And you could see the wealth disparities. Uh, a quote that I once heard describes this so sadly that it's um in in spanish it's pobrecito mexico tan cerca a los estados unidos tan lejos de dios uh, which translates to um poor mexico uh so close to the united states and so far from god and so my my parents you know speaking a little bit more about my mother here but my my father you know fled as i mentioned the civil war and they lived in pretty squalid conditions uh, in Los Angeles, which is even in the 80s, not a cheap city by any means, especially for folks who uh, were recent arrivals and didn't have very much. My mother had the benefit of being around family. My father um, was basically living in young men's houses. You know, sometimes he he described a situation where he and a, he and a friend basically rented out a car to sleep in. That was his reality for a little while. And so when we were when we were kids after we were born, this this theme of trying to secure more stability and and stability wasn't in this situation, unfortunately, something that could be found uh, within the family because everybody was more or less at the same level. There wasn't 
any one of my uh, uncles and aunts in Los Angeles who were any better than the others and that were any more capable of helping out the other one. So everyone was kind of, uh, unfortunately, left to their own devices to try to, to, try to get ahead. My, my parents made the decision that when I was very young that we should move to Atlanta and that uh, we should, that my father would leave behind his aspirations for medicine or anything in that community and instead work in construction. And that was all in pursuit of giving us and themselves a stable foundation, something that was generally immovable, that they could stand on and that they can build on. That was the opportunity that was afforded to them that in so many other spaces is not afforded to others. I remember getting to the Atlanta area. It was stark. The nice neighborhoods, the wealthy neighborhoods were the white neighborhoods. And the less those that were needing, those that were dangerous were the black neighborhoods. And the, the better funded schools were in predominantly white areas. Uh, tougher schools, the schools that were constantly failing were, were in black neighborhoods. And it was, it's so clear how the system is stacked against individuals who, who live in those neighborhoods. And they don't necessarily have to be black. Some of them, some of them are white. A lot of them nowadays are, are uh, predominantly from Latin America. But those neighborhoods, for the most part, at least when we got there, when we were among the first, you know, non, non-white, non-black, individuals to get to the to that area when Atlanta was first budding, it was white and black. Those areas were black neighborhoods. And and when you sat there and you thought, how did these people build that foundation? How were they enabled to build on that? It was so clear how how the system, the culture was stacked up against them. It's remarkable to me how the society is structured in a way that disallows individuals to build that kind of stability that they would have to move across the country totally unmoored for my family perhaps mentally it was a little bit easier they already made the move from their home countries to the united states so what's a move from one part of the united states to the other but for most folks that's absolutely bonkers that someone would uproot themselves, you know, remove themselves from the space that's closest to their families in order to seek some sort of stability elsewhere to make that, you know, that bet. It was actually through that, that I kind of understood that the, that poverty isn't necessarily, you know, not having the means or the money to sustain yourself or to make rent every day. It's actually largely the inability to make mistakes because when you are in those precarious situations where your life is being held together by a thread, trying to, to make that bet that I might be better off somewhere else is so close to being, you made that mistake of moving somewhere else and now you're homeless with no one else around you to help you out. It's really bleak. For us, 
in our community, we understand that there's this grave injustice that exists within our, within our community. And, and unfortunately for Latinos, Latinas, and Latinxes, most of us are, aren't in positions to be able to assist. We are, as a group, on aggregate, uh, lower income than most other communities. We are dramatically underrepresented than most other communities. Almost everybody has a story of interacting with that segment of our society. My mother for a long time housed um, families who had been negatively impacted by deportation. Close family friends, uh, they experienced a lot of economic hardship as a result of uh, their breadwinner uh, being deported, being arrested and deported, and not because he was a violent criminal in any capacity, but because he had driven just slightly over the crosswalk. He was pulled over. They found him without a valid license. They arrested him. And within a week, he was back in Mexico. He had lived there for 15 years. He had a son who was 12. His son is actually a US citizen because he was born in the United States. And so what are, what are we to do? We can only help one another. There isn't going to be a representative in Georgia who advocates for the DACA community, or at least not strongly, not in a leadership role. There isn't going to be uh, some wealthy Latin American or Latino or Latinx businessman that is able to sweep by and help all of these people out. There's too many of them. And there's too few of the folks who have the resources to, to help these individuals. So our hands are tied. They can achieve stability and we can't provide opportunity. Um, and it's not one of these situations where uh, once the rock and the hard place leave, they're in paradise. Of course not. Amnesty was an idea that was confirmed by or, or written into law by a Republican president in the 1980s. It's the reason why my parents got on the pathway to citizenship. And now it's, it's a bad word. And I mean, it's just like, it is, it really is just the stroke of a pen from particular individuals. Community is the string that keeps us all together. You know, I think about my family bonds a lot. I'm about to enter in a career field where I won't have the opportunity to see my family very much. Oftentimes we'll be separated by an ocean. And, my, and I know my family will never abandon me and that they'll always love me and they'll always be there for me. And, and I hope they know that, you know, the same, same is true from the other, you know, the other way. But then it's, what about everybody else? How can we come together to ensure that those that are feeling really downtrodden can elevate? How can we see the humanity in the others in order to provide them with tools and the stable footing that they might need to, to jump along because nobody, nobody makes it alone. No one. And if there's a segment of our society that really thinks that they can get ahead by bringing other folks down, then they're mistaken. 
nothing ever got better by being closed off, by denying others the opportunity to, to help along the way or to help others just generally. We expand the pie. We don't take pieces away. As I'm thinking about, you know, the current, you know, cultural, societal and political situation going on in the country right now, it brings me back to community. How can we demonstrate to one another that we're a part of a shared community here? And I haven't figured that out yet. I leave it with this question of how do we build stronger ties to others? Thanks for listening. Timestamp is produced by me, Amy Breslow, with IT support from Alex Moreno and original music by Maddie Schuler. You can find us at timestamppodcast.com and can subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying Timestamp, please consider sharing it or rating it. I'll be back in one or two weeks with the next episode. Until then, take care and be well. Thank you.